Turn to Matthew 18. I hope to finish this chapter today. I hope that we're not just finishing a chapter though, but that the message that has is coming to us by the Holy Spirit uh, as the Jesus' words are engaged with by us will come home to our hearts and that we will respond as the Holy Spirit would have us to respond. He that has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Beginning in verse 21, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Jesus could have stopped right there and moved on to another subject, but he doesn't do that. He continues because he's going to make the point in a different way. We might even say a negative way, but he's impressing upon the minds of his disciples and us and all who are in his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom. And so he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. An astronomical amount, as we you recall from last week. Unpayable amount. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Which, by the way, was somewhat within the range of doability. Not so much that he in prison could have earned the money, but he had relatives, he had others who could have come up with the money. That wasn't true. With the first servant. There would have been no way. And that's an important distinction. Because there's a contrast being drawn here. Jesus is making a point. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, Have patience with me. I'll pay you all. And he would not. Had no desire. That's the idea of he would not. There was no desire. But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, he summoned him to him. He said to him, You wicked 
servants. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers or the tormentors until he should pay all that was due to him. So, my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Forgiven, but not forgiving. The potential for relational division exists within every church. Jesus has been dealing with that in this passage in chapter 18. Until we are glorified no, and no longer dealing with this body of death, with all its infirmities, we're going to have run-ins with one another. In our head, the Lord Jesus is not telling us that in His kingdom, presently, there is no sin. He's not saying that if you're truly born again, you'll have no conflict with other brethren. In fact, quite the contrary. He's telling us how we are to deal with those. He's assuming conflicts. He's assuming that there are going to be those who sin against you and you against them. And He's telling us how to deal with it. He's telling us that in His kingdom, lived out in relationships in this life, the spirit of forgiveness must govern us. We need the Spirit of Christ producing the kind of heart that will be able to forgive like Jesus. When we read Jesus concluding words in verse 35, that if, if you do not, if, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother, his trespass, he's talking about a new heart. He's talking about a heart that's capable of forgiving. He is talking about sincerity. He is talking about in truth. He's not talking about just a show. He's not talking about just words. That's true, but it's a heart that has been transformed. Seventy times seven. That's what Jesus said. Seventy times seven. That There's no limit. That's what Jesus wants us to hear. The new heart and new spirit that his kingdom produces does not exact justice and vengeance, but it grants forgiveness. The law works wrath. Romans 4 and verse 15. The law works wrath. But in that same chapter, the Apostle Paul Quoting David said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. We don't run to the law. We run to Christ. And we don't exact the law upon one another. We manifest Christ toward 
one another. And this is the atmosphere of love and grace in the kingdom of heaven. In this parable, as we saw last week, the pattern for this spirit of forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven is established by the king himself. Represented by representing God in Christ, the king. I think of the king as Christ. Some think of the king as God. Some think of of Christ as the son of the king. And no matter how how you look at it, I mean, the father and the son are one. Right. And, and, and so the father sent the son. But the fact of the matter is, it is a representation of God forgiving. The insurmountable debt of the servant was absorbed by the king and forgiven, released, removed. He was free from an obligation that he could never have paid. He faced loss. He faced debtor's prison apart from mercy. So God absorbed the insurmountable certificate of debt every forgiven sinner owes. That's huge. That's huge. The curse of the law and condemnation of sin and death was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Mercy provided what justice demanded. So that penitent, believing sinners are forgiven all our sins. Stamped, paid in full. Our debt is gone. And if you are a recipient of this mercy, if you've been forgiven by God, it's expected, it is expected that you will also be merciful. It's not reasonable to be forgiven, to say that you have been forgiven, and to hold on to a spirit of unforgiveness or not forgiving those who sin against you. So in this parable, Jesus intends to expose this spirit of unforgiveness. That's what he's doing. That's what this, that's what this servant is about. It isn't primarily even about him being forgiven, though that is the backdrop. It's the, it's about the, it's about his response to his forgiveness, which was to exhibit a spirit of unforgiveness. Which we might say really was no response to being forgiven at all. It's as if he's disconnected. Jesus is telling us that the spirit of unforgiveness does not fit in his kingdom. And so he's telling the parable to turn his disciples away from such a wicked spirit. You wicked servant, it's a wicked spirit. And he's telling this for us that we might be turned away from what he calls a wicked spirit. So just, just, just briefly, what is the spirit of unforgiveness? Well, it's the opposite of forgiveness. And we know that forgiveness is, as we saw last week, this the release of an offense. It's not hanging on to it. And it's not hanging it over someone. It's letting it go. It's a determination to let it go. Unforgiveness is quite different from that. Unforgiveness analyzes. Unforgiveness calculates. Unforgiveness magnifies wrong that is done. 
and will not release the offender until the offender has satisfied the debt, at least in the mind of the one that's been offended. And typically that will never happen because the offender can never do enough to get free. Not from unforgiveness. You owe me is the driving spirit and mindset of unforgiveness. An unforgiving spirit seeks vengeance. It's controlled by the hurt, by the sorrow, by the loss that's caused by someone else's sin. Can you relate to this? We've all been hurt. We've all been caused grief by someone else's sin. And especially someone else's sin against us. We know what that feels like. But unforgiveness hangs on to it and is controlled by that. An unforgiving spirit is fertile soil for bitterness, anger, strife, quarreling, unjust judgment, harsh criticisms, gossip, speaking out against one another. And the list, I suppose, could go on. Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, when he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, which is sort of an outburst of words, and evil speaking... Be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. One another. This isn't just a one-way street. Forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ forgave you. But this spirit of unforgiveness is really a spirit that's in bondage to the past, perpetuating emotional pain and nurturing sinful attitudes against your offender. You view yourself as a victim, and you want everybody to know it. You seek pity. You long for attention. You hope for someone to ask, what's wrong? So that you can unload about the deep hurt that someone has caused you. Can you relate to this? You're unable to acknowledge any good about the offender. Everything about them is tainted by this spirit of unforgiveness. Colored by the spirit that controls you. There's no mercy. You have no mercy. You cannot cannot show mercy. The spirit of unforgiveness may lie dormant. Smoldering inside. And, And you may actually forget about it. Because you've said you forgive. You say, I forgive you. But a thought or a word or action triggers the emotion and uprises that volcanic ash of bitterness and resentment that lay temporarily suppressed within the heart of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is so destructive. So destructive. It's destructive to you. It's destructive to relationships. In any community of people, especially, it is destructive in the church. You see, brethren, Jesus wants us to know that this spirit of unforgiveness is really a contradiction in the kingdom of heaven. And so he he gives this parable. He portrays the exaggerated contrast in this parable to make this point. And he argues really from the greater To the lesser, can you see that? The the greatness of what has been forgiven in this 
one servant's debt in relationship to the lesser debt that that forgiven servant doesn't seem to be at least willing to forgive. The problem with the forgiven servant is that having received such great mercy, he failed to show any. He did not forgive as he was forgiven. And maybe because he didn't have the sense of it. And when you don't, when you do not have the sense of what you have been forgiven, you will be less likely to forgive. And that's a huge point. In verse 28, you'll notice in the parable, this forgiven servant, it says, but that servant went out. And found one of his fellow servants. It's interesting. It's like no time delay. There's no, there's hardly a, a moment's delay between leaving his master and then taking hold of someone who had offended, had sinned, owed him something. And I think Jesus presents it this way because he wants us to feel what's going on here. There is no sense in this servant's heart of what has just happened. He just had 10,000 talents forgiven. That's lifetimes of labor. Equivalent to lifetimes of labor forgiven. Wiped off the record. Not held against him. You're free to go. But then... Immediately, he lays hold of a servant who owed him almost nothing in comparison. Some calculate that a hundred denarii is about four months' pay for a for a laborer, whereas the the talent ten that one talent was approximately fifteen years' labor for a laborer's wage. And you multiply. I didn't do the math, but. It's astronomical. Pay me what you owe. And so this fellow servant in verse 29 fell down. And and it's interesting, you notice the wording, if you compare verse 29 to verse 26, you see almost the very same words. And Jesus is portraying it this way. You see, this, this didn't actually happen. It's a parable, right? But he's wanting us to feel this. That the fact of the matter is that when this servant who owed such little said what he said in verse 29, surely that should have triggered something in the mind of the more greatly forgiven servant of what he had been forgiven. And yet he's unmoved. He's unmoved. He seems to have no heart level sense of the depth of mercy shown to him. And so in verse 30, it says, and he would not. He didn't desire it. It wasn't in his heart. That's a word of will. There was no desire. It wasn't just he struggled to forgive. We can relate to that. He had no desire. He would not forgive. But. 
went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And then his fellow servants reacted in verse 31. And I believe Jesus is appealing to our senses here in the reaction of the servants. It's kind of like we, we get it, fellow servants. We, 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 we put ourselves into the story and we can, we can feel what they felt. We feel for the unforgiven servant, don't we? I mean, why, why would he treat him that way? Yes, he, he owed him a debt. Yes, he should pay. But, but give him some space. Right? I mean, that, that, that's a payable debt. Go, allow him the opportunity to pay it back. So we, so we feel for this servant. Why wouldn't the forgiven servant show mercy? And then the master's response in verses 32 and 33 really, I think, probably resonates with most of us. We find no issue with the response. When this, when his master, then his master, we, I mean, we think, hey, finally, yeah, some, something right is being done here. His master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant. We, we, we don't think in our minds, well, well, you know, that, that forgiven servant got off. He's free. No, there's nothing's going to be done to him. No, it, we, we, don't we feel it? That something should happen to him. Something should be done. It's not right the way he's treating his fellow servant. The forgiven servant's unforgiving attitude to his peer is senseless. And that's what Jesus says. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And this is how Jesus wants the disciples and us to respond. This this sense of senselessness. It makes no sense. That's the point of the parable, really. It makes no sense. It's a total contradiction to the spirit of his kingdom. You wicked servant. So Jesus is telling the parable in a way that makes an obvious point that he intends will impact the disciples and you and me. The Master's response in verse 34 also, I believe, strikes us as right, doesn't it? So, when he says, And his Master was angry and delivered him to the torturers or the tormentors until he should pay all that was due to him. He's just in his anger. And in delivering this unforgiving servant to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. He's just in that. And we read that and we come to the end of verse 34 and we say, I like that parable. That I like the message of that parable. And I believe that's exactly where Jesus wants us to be as we read that parable. It is a parable. But now Jesus applies it to his disciples. And to you and me, his answer to Peter's question initially was unlimited forgiveness, which was a striking response, I'm sure, to Peter and the disciples. Unlimited forgiveness. And perhaps there was in their mind some thoughts of, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And so Jesus now presses 
that positive answer with this negative one. You will be dealt with by my Father if you don't forgive. Isn't that what he says? So, my heavenly Father. He knows his Father, by the way. So, my heavenly Father. They couldn't see him. Jesus was in the bosom of his Father forever. He has come to earth to reveal his Father. He knows his Father. So, my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. And so I imagine, as I try to put myself in the, in the shoes or in the seat or in the mind of these disciples hearing this parable, and they're, they're hearing it and they're thinking, yes, that, that's just, that's right. The unforgiving servant got what he deserved. But then Jesus strikes at their own heart and their own mind and he turns the parable really onto them. When he says, so, my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, not just Peter, each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Well, that's cause for pause, isn't it? Isn't it? It's as if to say, it's as if Jesus is saying to these disciples, you are the men. Do you remember another occasion back in 2 Samuel chapter 12? You remember David has had Uriah killed and he's not really seeing his sin and he's married Bathsheba and he's had a child and he's just skating along. After all, you know, he's the Lord's anointed, Right. God doesn't have a problem with me because I'm the Lord's anointed. He doesn't see a sin. And so God sends a prophet, sends Nathan. Do you remember that? And Nathan gives him a story about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had guests. And the poor man had one little lamb. And that little lamb, the way the story's told, it's interesting. That little lamb was like a daughter to that poor man. He wasn't raising it for food. It was like a daughter to him. Clearly, Nathan was tugging at the heart of, of David. And he was, a point was being made, but David wasn't seeing the point. And so, when he said that the, the rich man actually stole that ewe lamb and killed it and fed it to his guests, and, and what did David say? That, that, that man needs to die. That man needs to be punished. That man needs to be dealt with. And then Nathan says, you are the man. And of course, David was led to repentance, wasn't he? And he wept over his sin and, and he thought something horrible was going to happen. But we have the, the glory of God's grace demonstrated even there when he said, no, you won't die. You won't die. Now, there are going to be repercussions. There are things that are going to happen. And that's the way sin is, isn't it? Sin has those kinds of things. It creates those kinds of difficulties in our lives. But he was led to repentance. And that's exactly 
what the story was being told for him, brethren. I believe that's true here in this case. As Jesus speaks to Peter and his disciples, he is leading them to see something about themselves. And it should resonate with them in the end to the point of bringing them to the place that they need to be. And that is expressing their hearts of forgiveness to one another. This is really a warning that Jesus gives. And I believe that it's important that we not dull the edge or blunt the force of the point He's making. We can't twist Scripture. These disciples struggled. What did they struggle with? They struggled with pride. That's the way the chapter begins. Who's the greatest? And then you go over to chapter 20 and verse 24 and it Rises it, rears its ugly head again. And when the ten heard it, they heard about the question that was being asked about um, the sons of Zebedee. Who shall their mother ask who, who, who would be granted to sit in his kingdom on the right hand and the left? And, and she was talking about her two sons. And, and this created problems. It caused division among the disciples. And it says... And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. And the other gospel accounts makes it sound even more intense. The the strife between the men that was created. In the flesh we struggle, don't we? Don't we? In the flesh we struggle. Just like these disciples. And the spirit of unforgiveness can actually creep into every one of our lives. And it threatens the experience of unity. The ex- it cannot threaten our relationship to our Father, which is because of our union. You know, you are united to God because of your union in Jesus Christ, which the Spirit of God brings us into that cannot be threatened. But the experience of unity can be threatened. And this is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17, both the union and the experience of that. So much so that the world sees our unity and is impressed with the truth of who Jesus is. This was Jesus' prayer. This is one of the reasons why it's so important. It's not just about you. It's about how it reflects upon Him. Whose name you carry. Whose name you bear. So Jesus says, My heavenly Father will not tolerate this kind of spirit in His forgiven ones. It hinders the very relationship that He intends for His children in His kingdom. This spirit, this attitude, I'm not going to forgive you. And so Jesus says there's consequence. Do you see that? Do you read this? Do you read this and say, well, He didn't really mean what He's saying? Do you read this and say, well, that's not really what He... How do you read it? So, my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. And he's not, Jesus is not drawing a conclusion here. You're not going to do it. That's not the point. 
But the point is, this is how serious this is. This is how serious forgiveness is. In your relationship to God, in your relationship to one another, there are consequences. If anyone from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespass. So what does Jesus say his father will do? If we refuse to sincerely, genuinely, from our heart, forgive. What does he say? In verse 34, he says, so, he's reflecting back, so, my heavenly father also will do. What did the master in the parable do? He was angry. He delivered him to the torturers, the tormentors, until he should pay all that was due to him. If you take Jesus' words seriously, you have to wrestle with those words. What is he saying? Torturers or tormentors. Some of you have jailers, I think, in your translation. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Now, there's a related word that's translated torment or torments, as in Luke 16, with the one who was in hell. He was tormented. So there are those who will conclude that's what Jesus is referring to here. He's talking about hell. I'm not so convinced of that. But he means something, some form of punishment that is related to prison. That's the context. That's the parable. And so there is some kind of parallel in the lives of his children in his kingdom. And this is the result of a forgiven one not forgiving. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about a forgiven, a forgiven one, isn't he? Jesus is not speaking to the world at large here. He's not talking to all men. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who are presumably Children of the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom who have the kingdom in them. He's talking to his followers. He's talking to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So what does he mean? What does verse 34 mean in application? Well, John Wesley says this. And shall we still say... But when we are once freely and fully forgiven, our pardon can never be retracted. Are you hearing the question that he's asking? He is saying that this parable is proof that you, believer, can have your sins totally forgiven. And yet, if you do not forgive, those sins are placed back on you. Can that be true? Will God return to a truly forgiven child a debt his son has borne? No. No. There is, the verse was quoted in the last hour, this, there is therefore now no condemnation. Now, no condemnation. Now. 
And that's at any point that you read that as a believer. Now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not just because God wants to forgive. Oh, that's true. But it's because you are in Christ Jesus. The union with Him is your guarantee. He is the guarantee. You're not the guarantee. He is. So, Mr. Wesley, if there's any respect to be given on that particular point, I wholeheartedly and fully disagree with you on that. Perhaps he changed his view on that. I don't know. Sometimes we, you know, we quote people from the past and we quote them from a certain point in their lives. And it's good. To, it's good to find out when they said what they said. They may have changed their minds on some things. Right. I hope you don't judge me by everything that I've said in my almost 40 years of preaching. You know, there's things that I've said that I, I wish I hadn't said. What about Roman Catholicism? What does Roman Catholicism say? Anybody know? Roman Catholicism says that this verse, verse 34 and verse 35, is clear evidence of purgatory. Because you see what he says. Delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. That's purgatory. Once you have paid what was due, you get out. But beloved, no sinner can ever pay off the debt he owes. That can't be what Jesus is saying. Someone wrote these lyrics, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt He did not owe. That equals forgiveness. What then is Jesus saying? Again, we must not twist His words. We must not silence His warning. So what is He saying? And you do have to Think through all of Scripture, but I think if you just understand that this parable is an exaggerated, hyper, hyperbolic sort of expression, making the point, as we said last week, of the significance of forgiveness in His kingdom, I think you'll be helped in not getting bogged down with some of the particulars that you might otherwise get bogged down with. But Jesus has made the point on more than one occasion That if you refuse to forgive, your Father in heaven will not ignore it. Is that a true statement? In Matthew chapter 11, no, excuse me, Mark chapter 11, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus said this to his disciples and to us whenever you stand praying, If you have anything against anyone, and remember, this is sort of like what he said back in Matthew chapter 5. You know, if you take your gift to the altar and there you remember. So you're praying. If you have anything against anyone, so you're standing, you're, you're in the act of praying. If you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That, that is in your heart, from your heart. That is in that moment. That your father, you notice how he says that. He didn't say they're my father. He says your father 
So he's assuming their relationship to God. Your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, if that's your stance, if that's your position, I will not forgive. Neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. It's almost like he's saying something that is unconscionable to someone who has truly been forgiven. And realizes the forgiveness that has been granted to them. Back in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, at the conclusion of the model prayer, Jesus said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father, not not my, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what will Jesus' Father, he says, my Father, what will Jesus' Father, who is also our Father, right, if we're in Christ, our Father, what will He do to each of us who refuse to forgive our brother or our sister in Christ? The Master in the parable delivered Him to the torturers or the tormentors or the, or the jailer or punishment. And I would agree with those who have concluded that the torturers or the tormentors are the Father's chastening agents intended to dislodge from His forgiven ones an unforgiving spirit toward a brother or sister in Christ. The only way that your sins are ever forgiven before, when you believe, and even after you believe, till the day that you're in heaven, is that they have been forgiven by grace through faith in Christ alone. You will never be able to earn your way into favor with God. And He is not treating you and dealing with you as one who is out of favor with Him. He's dealing with you as one that He does favor. He does love. He's treating you like a son. Like a son. He will surely in love chasten you as severely as is necessary to bring you to repentance. And restore the spirit of forgiveness, which is a peaceable fruit of righteousness. You know, perhaps that I'm quoting from Hebrews chapter 12. Where you read words like this. Don't be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Or whom the Lord loves, he chastens and Scourges. Does that sound like punishment? Scourges. But it's not a dead-end punishment. It's not punishment for punishment's sake. It's not just hurting one of His children. Sometimes we as fathers, earthly fathers, may enrage, do something like that. And there's forgiveness from our Father in Heaven when that happens. But our Father in Heaven never treats His children like that. Never. He scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 8, 
Hebrews 12.8, if you're, if you're without chastening of which all have been partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In fact, this is one of the proofs of sonship. That He loves you. You know, you who are parents, you love your children like you love no other children, don't you? And other children do things and you think in your mind, I'll never let mine get by with that, right? And you wouldn't let yours get by with it because you have a love for your children. Of course, you have a responsibility too. Your responsibility isn't for all the other children in the world. And it's not that you don't have a love for them. It's just they're not yours. Your responsibility It's not the ones that you peculiarly love. Are you hearing a, a parallel here? And so no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. These are, these are words that parallel this idea of torment. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields. It yields. It yields something. There's a goal here in it. The peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been exercised or trained by it. So where this un Forgiving spirit lingers in the heart of a child of God. And it can linger there. It can be there. And it can exist for a while. Not forever. But where it exists, and those of us who have had it, those of us who have experienced it, we know it. Some of you may be experiencing it right now. There is misery. And there's even physical suffering that can be associated with this unforgiving, bitter spirit that can exist in you. Now, physical things can happen for many different reasons, and it may not be because of this, but there are, and I I quote from others who have examined this, ulcers and high blood pressure, headaches, tormentors that make you lie awake at night on your bed, stewing over every rotten thing that happens to you. Have you ever experienced that? Happiness is gone. Happiness is gone. And why is happiness gone? Because you have, at least for a moment, a time, a season, departed from the very one of the very foundations for that happiness, for that blessedness. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall obtain mercy. Brethren, that's the description of a born-again person. And I believe that a conclusion that is necessary not only from the words of Jesus, but from the words of Scripture as a whole, a truly forgiven child of God cannot be characterized by an indignant unwillingness to forgive. I've actually heard people, and sometimes it comes from Christians, I will never forgive that person. Or if they did that to me, I could never forgive them. Have you heard those kinds of words? The fact of the matter is, if you do not forgive from your heart, you really do reveal your heart. Unforgiven. And so incapable of forgiving. And if you remain in that hardened place, A truly unforgiving, unmerciful person will face judgment without mercy. 
How do I know that? How do I know that? That's exactly what God tells us. James 2 and verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment upon us and our judgment in relationship to others, you see. Mercy. Jesus wants us to know that forgiving is not optional for the child of God. It's not. And if you're thinking, if you're thinking that it is, there's something wrong in you. And you need to hear the words of your, of your, of your Savior and of our Father through Him. You must forgive. You can't be too generous in forgiving. I've wondered about that in my own life at times. Well, Kyle, you know, be careful. Right? Be careful. If you're, if you're too generous and you're forgiving, what, what effect are you going to have on them? That's not my business. You can't forgive more than you have been forgiven. There's one thing, there's one debt that you can never pay. What is it? Love. 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 And is that, is that not what forgiveness is an expression of? So Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you will be confronted by His Father, who is your Father, who has forgiven you for the sake of His Son. Peter eventually understood this, didn't he? He had to go through an awful lot, and you know the story of Peter's life. And he had to endure some awful, awful painful days and as he was dealing with his own sin, but, but he experienced the incredible, infinite love of God in Jesus Christ and his own forgiveness, didn't he? And it was he who exhorted the saints in 1 Peter chapter 4. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. He experienced that himself. God's love in you forgives. So, as you read this parable and as you hear the conclusion of, of Jesus. Do, do you really hear Him? Do you respond? Do you have a heart capable of forgiving? You know, this parable is not against you, dear child of God. No, you, you have a heart that's capable of forgiving, and so you will from your heart forgive your brother who sins against you. You, you will. You'll not hold on to an unforgiving spirit. 
At least not forever. You may, you may, because in the flesh, it's awfully difficult sometimes to forgive. But the more you understand the depth of mercy that God has shown to you in forgiving you all your sins, the more free you will be in granting forgiveness. There's no greater motivation than God's love towards you. And so if you sense a spirit of forgiveness, a spirit of unforgiveness, the flesh uprising, what should you do? Mortify it. Confess it to God. In fact, tell Him. Tell Him as it's rising up. God, I'm having trouble right now. Confess it to Him. He is faithful. He is just to forgive you and to cleanse you. He doesn't say, keep going just as you are. He doesn't do that. He, he, he's, he's conforming you to Himself. And so live in relation to one another in that spirit of forgiveness that you experience from Him. And there are some of you who have not yet experienced the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. I hope you're hearing the kind of God that reveals Himself in this book. Who has revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ. And I hope you'll call upon Him. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's plenteous in mercy. Plenteous. He's ready to forgive all who call upon Him. Father, I pray that You would bless...